Technology continues to change and shape the way we interact with the world, ourselves, and one another. With the fast pace of tech, it can be challenging to understand its full effects on society. In Cut the Code podcast, join me in exploring topics and ideas centered around technology and humanity, discussing their cultural and ethical implications, and questioning some of tech's greatest unknowns. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Cut the Code Podcast. Today I'm joined by a very special guest, Thomas Suarez. He is the co-founder, CEO, and CTO at Teleportal, which is a spatial computing company building creator tools in the space of VR and AR. In the past, he's been a human-computer interaction researcher at Georgia Tech, and one of the coolest fun facts I know about him is that he's one of the youngest people ever to give a TED Talk. He's talked about computer science education, prototyped a modular 3D printer, and built open source projects. He's also a Teal Fellow. And ultimately, at the end of the day, I know him as a guy that is a software and electronics engineer that's passionate about the democratization of open source platforms and radical technology. Thanks so much, Thomas, for taking some time today to hop on the show. So I like to start out the podcast by talking about what your journey is and how you got into computing ultimately, um, whether it stemmed from like a childhood passion of yours or anything that has really just pushed you into the space of technology. Yeah, I've always been super fascinated by this stuff, you know, software and electronics engineering. I started building iPhone applications when I was around nine or 10. And that was really just spawned from this desire to create games and create applications for desktop at first and then for mobile. So started learning some programming languages and then got into Objective-C, which was the first programming language that I was fluent in. I used that for the iPhone SDK at the time, which was eventually renamed the iOS SDK. But yeah, just got into app development through iPhone and then started doing more with Android and servers and client-server architectures, peer-to-peer distributed networks. Gotcha. Yeah. That's really fascinating to hear that, you know, at such a young age, you've caught on to technology. I see that kind of being more and more accessible to, you know, of course, kids in in the future generations and people are just gravitated towards technology at such a young age now, because that's kind of where all the information ever is going to be stored in. So it's really cool to hear that you were fascinated and into that space from such a young age, and it's still where you've stuck around to today. So as you talked about, you know, your passion about app development, what kind of led you to seek out your of your comfort zone and get into the space of VR and AR? And I know that in the past you created a, you know, a really cool, interesting framework that's AR laser tag game, um, which had over 45K downloads. And so what kind of pushed you to get into that space? The catalyst for me to get into AR was actually Google Glass. And I think Google Glass was ahead of its time in a lot of ways. This is 2012, or in in 2012, Google launched Glass. And it was, in many ways, the catalyst for me to get into AR and spatial computing because it showed that we, at that time, had this device based on you know the culmination of decades of research into human computer interaction and ubiquitous computing all these different devices and sensors that we have with us on a daily basis 
we were able to miniaturize it down into something that we could wear. And AR and VR hardware is not new. It's been around for decades, but this is the first time that it was really uh, miniaturized into something that was ubiquitous and usable for everyday computing. So that was really exciting to me. But also this idea of having contextual interaction where I could walk down the street with my Google Glass on and information would pop up as I need it. And so Google Glass operated on this principle of it's there when you need it and it's gone when you don't. And that was also really exciting to me. But also the prospect of bringing computing from this two-dimensional screen out into the three-dimensional world first maybe in a 3D game engine or a metaverse style thing like Roblox and then bringing it out into spatial computing where you can actually wear a piece of hardware. So in 2012, really got into that with Glass. 2013, I actually couldn't get my hands on Google Glass, but I did start building my own version of Google Glass. And I used the Raspberry Pi and BeagleBone and kind of tried to run Android on it. And so I had this makeshift Google Glass hardware that I ran it was attached to a helmet. It was kind of <laughs> crazy looking. But I was experimenting with all those software and hardware. And then eventually I did get the chance to buy Google Glass. And I actually used the funds from those iPhone applications that I had developed a couple of years back to pay for Glass. And you know, I still use the same unit to this day. So the same unit that I got in 2013, I'm, I'm still using it and I run Linux on it now. But that got me really interested in AR. And then in 2015, I started building this laser tag game called YTAG. The, per the premise of YTAG was laser tag could be accessible through smartphones. It could be, I guess the, the premise of YTAG was we have these smartphones with sensors and radios that can facilitate real world AR uh, interactions in AR worlds. You know, we have the cellular modem for a network connection and communicating with other devices. We have an IMU for detecting movement and orientation and things like that. You know, we have a GPS for fairly precise location and, and we have a camera for overlaying all this content over the real world. And so with those sensors and devices, I was able to start just creating this mobile application and a server backend to power it. And that's where YTAG was born and then went into kind of creating a software development kit for developers after that based on that technology. And that's kind of what created Teleportal. Wow, that is a whirlwind of a journey there with, I think probably the most thing that stands out to me is the fact that you never felt comfortable with, you know, okay, this is my 2D screen, this is what I can do in it, and that's awesome. But the fact that you sought out more, especially with the funds that you received from your applications to get your own Google Glass unit, I think that's just really remarkable sense that, you know, there's always an edge that to push in technology, right? There's always that next level of, you know, really stepping out of the bounds of what you think is possible. And in this kind of case, it's actually very an interesting metaphor because you're actually physically, you know, breaking the bounds of computing. And I think that's really unique and cool to to have that type of drive there. You know, to see that you've landed at Teleportal today, and I'm assuming like that is your as your child, I know that startups are, I'm sure it's very near and dear to your heart. So Teleportal, I think, is stands in a very unique space because we don't see, honestly, a lot of startups in the AR VR space. Like we all know about Oculus that got acquired by Facebook. 
we've heard about Magic Leap. I don't know what they're really up to today. I know they had like an interesting stint for a while, but I haven't heard of them in the past few years, actually. But Teleportal, I think, is in a really unique spot because I haven't heard of another company that is trying to actually build out software platform that is so creator forward, right? A lot of other cases I see are game development companies, like they're partnering with Oculus, right? Like Beat Saber and all these other, you know, big full-fledged games um, that are pretty commercialized now. But in terms of actually empowering creators and to have them revolutionize of how we all interact with our physical and digital worlds, that's, I think, Teleportal's mission that just speaks really loud and clear with building, you know, accessible and collaborative um, and secure spatial computing. So it's very unique, I think, the position that Teleportal is in. And I just kind of wanted to know a little bit more about what you can share about the company's history and what really led you to imagine that mission and vision. And how come you just didn't go for the commercial stuff, man? Like, you know, what really knocked you and your team to be very creator forward and creator centered? Yeah, no, I appreciate all that. I mean, we've had this vision for a long time and it predates Teleportal and it predates YTAG of a future where the computer is extrapolated from 2D into 3D and where people are having more natural, more intuitive interactions with their computer. I mean, I think ultimately the, I guess to, to talk more a little bit more about the vision, computers were historically used for mathematics and very complex mathematical calculations, and they still are. That's still on a low level what's happening in every computer all the time. And they're extremely fast and they're very capable. And we have a lot of research happening in the machine learning field and, and things like that to improve improve the efficiency. And there's a lot of machine learning research that is coming out to increase our capability. But I think the computer has gone more and more from this solely mathematical kind of complicated calculator to a creator tool, to something that people can actually use as an instrument and as a tool. But but it's interesting like where, where we've come from because we started with these, at least for personal computers with command line interfaces, and then we went to graphical user interfaces. But the graphical user interfaces, while they're great, they're still trapped on this 2D screen. We still have a bitmap display. We still have an input device. And the idea at Teleportal is let's build new type of computing environment to the low level, so that's very efficient, it runs well, people can write software that interoperates with other software in a spatial environment, not just kind of processes talking to each other, but actually interacting with physics and interacting with, you know, logic that is uh, programmable by the, by the user, not necessarily by a developer that operates a few levels down on the stack, but creating this environment where people can create logic and they can create art together and they can be in the same space and everything is just handled by this computing environment. And I think that does have to happen, not necessarily on the application layer, it has to happen lower level, closer to the operating system, which is what our longer term research and development is focused on. But in the meantime, Teleportal has actually gone through a few different waves. You know, we, we started with YTAG, which was this laser tag game. We took the technology from YTAG and we made it into an SDK for developers. And we, we actually worked on that for a couple of years but then what we realized is that there are elements of what we were trying to do with the SDK and what we're trying to do long-term that are really difficult to do if offering a SDK that is only for developers. We want to offer something for creators, something that is accessible on mobile, something that is 
very performance-based, so it feels more like using a musical instrument than programming a computer, and something that is multi-user from the foundation, not something that's added in later, but something that is able to, you know, either through remixing or synchronous multi-user, which is people being in the same place at the same time. And I think that is where things get really interesting. Um, but we're trying to build the core technology that allows all that stuff to happen. And I mean, we've built a lot of it for the SDK, but a lot of it is still in R&D. And we're just really excited about it. That I think to your point about startups versus big companies and the overall atmosphere in AR right now, it's really interesting because there are a lot of AR startups that come into fruition and then they just get acquired by bigger companies and they kind of get either snapped up by Apple or they get snapped up by Facebook or Meta now, uh, or they get snapped up by some company and we don't really see what happens to them for many years and they may just, it may just not happen. And I think with Teleportal, we have the opportunity to create an independent alternative, like a very, very good independent alternative to those bigger players. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great way you describe it with at the very core of Teleportal, you know, you guys are interested in that low-level computing approach to really create that shared world state. And that I think is where someone with no experience in, you know, computer development or programming can really enter and say, hey, I can still contribute and create whatever I'd like to do and share that, you know, that type of content with others. And I think that's exactly the trend that we're seeing these days. I personally spend a lot of time lately on TikTok and you can just see the plethora of content that's being made by so many different creators. Like never have I come across like the same creator twice or multiple times like on my For You page. So that's just to see, say, you know, just call it some trends that you talked about is like mobile first, you know, either remixing or adding layering content on top of existing content and just having like a collaborative space we see with like either where it be like live streaming content or whatever it may be where you have that interaction in place that's real time and that's as close as we can get. And I always touch upon this like in my previous episodes, but do you feel that, you know, COVID has just really ramped up and accelerated this kind of need for, you know, digital interactions in a time where physical interactions of course weren't you know, weren't really safe and weren't really sought after. Definitely. With the pandemic, we all have to adapt to a remote lifestyle. And so I think AR and VR make a lot more sense to people now than they did even, you know, two or three years ago. And we've actually seen this with our fundraising as well at Teleportal and explaining it to people. People understand it a lot more when you when they have some sort of either societal or pop culture reference. So in the case of the pandemic, it made a lot more sense to people. Oh yeah, I'm going to go and I can see maybe a hologram of my loved one in front of me. Whereas before it was perhaps creepy or like, why wouldn't I just go and see them in person? And then also with Facebook and you know this metaverse focus, all of a sudden investors and just the general public seems to understand what we're doing a lot more which is really interesting that one company has that much impact over 
pop culture that now it's like, oh, well, metaverse is a Facebook thing. Well, it's not really. I mean, spatial computing is not a teleportal thing. It's not a magic leap thing. The, the term was coined in the late 90s or so. So it's it's not that any of this stuff is particularly new. It's just now that there are more ways to execute it, people are jumping on it. And I think that's it's still very nascent and people have to work together, but it's it's a very cool field to be in. Yeah, definitely. It's like, it really reminds me of the time, like, why did Google Glass fail, right? It was, it's such a cool product, but unfortunately it was like all timing for them, right? It was just a time where the computing, you know, people didn't really warm up to it and it wasn't in a place that it was just, to be honest, way ahead of its time. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, Google Glass is definitely ahead of its time in a lot of ways. Even if you look at the computation ability of Google Glass, just on the hardware side and the software side, it is a very capable device. It runs Android 4.4. At least my my unit is still running Android 4.4. I have Ubuntu 12 running on there as well and a CH root. It's fine. Like it, it works. For 2012 to be running that kind of software and to be doing it in a way that, in my opinion, actually looks way better than most smart glasses that exist right now, whether it's HoloLens or Magic Leap One or most of the smart glasses that are on the market, of which there are there are a few, um, at least at the moment, Google Glass still, in my opinion, looks better because it's the least intrusive and it's the least weight out of all of them. Glass only weighed around 40 grams or so, and that is way lighter than any other smart glass pretty much on the market. It's, it's lighter than some sunglasses. And so Google really figured out the industrial design, they figured out the software, they figured out the hardware, but they were ahead of their time. And I think people underestimate glass because they say, oh, it's 2012 hardware. And it's the same reason people underestimate like RIM hardware, Blackberry in the early days, or Palm, or you know, even older systems like you know, Cray supercomputers, like all of these systems were cutting edge when they came out. And there are still so many things that we can learn from them. And Honestly, I think that too often Silicon Valley is focused on the here and the now and the future. And we forget about the past because we actively ignore the past. We say, oh, well, they weren't as advanced. They didn't know that it's older technology. Why would we go back to older technology? But in many cases, what you see is the older technology has very valuable components that no one's paying attention to. And for example, small talk with Alan Kay. That was such an, a visionary system, and many parts of small talk have still not been realized in modern computing because of the way that certain events played out in computing history. But I think that there are multiple lessons from small talk that if applied to modern day computing with the modern day creator tools and the modern day hardware that we have, it would completely change the way that people interact with their computers. It would completely change the way people program their computers. And I think that the no-code solutions that are out there right now, for example, or the ways that we're creating art and creating designs on our computers right now, like those tools should be merged. And beyond being merged, they should operate at a much lower level. They should be part of how the computer works, not an abstraction on top of some extra, you know, some all, all of the kernel and the operating system and the graphic user, like the desktop manager, all of these things. There's so much cruft in the current computing stack right now. And I think it could be replaced by older concepts, which sounds crazy, but there's so much to learn from the, the pioneers of this stuff. Yeah, I love that. 
in so many different ways, right? Because you're leveraging what people have done in the past that just unfortunately, whatever you call it, market factors, your, your customer base, whatever it be, it just didn't take off for that sole reason, right? But if we actually take a step back and zoom in to, you know, the components of these things, they have so much to offer. And, you know, you're giving great examples of that. And, you know, to see that kind of inspire how Teleportal focuses on that low level protocol, I think that's very admirable and will definitely set you guys up in a space that is totally unique, but that's an advantage, right? That is going to be your X or wow factor, I think. I, that's, I'm feeling bullish on that, so yeah. <laughs> Thanks, we, we are too, we'll see. You know, one thing I really wanna highlight about Teleportal that I find very interesting is that while you have all these great features that you present, there's also still an emphasis on data privacy, security, you know, open sourcing the tools, and you know, what, again, just kind of, not questioning Teleportal's, you know, values here, but why why even consider that in the first place, right? Like it, it's so easy to kind of brush off those things and just kind of be like after you're hitting like key metrics of, you know, monthly users and things like that. But why do you even place an emphasis on this and why is that important to Teleportal? I think there are different incentives that come into play in different social situations. So whether that's political or whether it's in a company or, you know, et cetera. And in this particular case, a lot of people do care about their privacy online, whether they, at least in my opinion, whether they know it or not, like it's the same kind of reason we have locks on our doors, you know, in person we, we, we want and we need privacy. And there are certain pieces of information, in fact, most information that Teleportal or Apple or Google or Facebook, like, these companies don't really, in my opinion, they don't have any right to that data because that's personal data. You know, that is your life. It's like, what, what does the company really need out of that data? And there are certain metrics and, you know, advertising things and, and things like that. But the problem is that with a lot of these systems that are coming out, especially as we go more into spatial computing, where there are so many sensors and so many cameras and so you know, like there's, there's so many different ways to collect very sensitive data on people, there's less control than there ever was. Because now we have to say, in order to use this headset, I agree to this company's terms and conditions, and then I can set up my account, and then I can use the device, and the device is bricked unless I agree to these terms, which include potential privacy violations. But if you look at it from the, the standpoint of the user, maybe they care, maybe they don't, but the point is that the company, it's 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 not really up to the governments anymore, it seems. You know, it's not up to the government. It's not even up to the individual to decide what data they're okay with giving. It's up to the companies because they're the ones creating the technology. And so there's this idea that, and this idea among engineers and developers saying, oh, well, I'm just part of this bigger machine and I develop and I create, you know, this software and how it's used is up to someone else, but it isn't because how the user uses it is not really their choice. You know, they're, they're either using it or they're not. So I think it's just a alignment of incentives there, but also with Teleportal 2 in general, breaches happen at any company. And I think if the data doesn't exist in the first place, A, there's no data to leak 
and B, there's no data to, you know, give up to a government if they're asking for, you know, whatever, whatever data on, on people. But I think it's just a, it's a slippery slope once you start asking people for very private data. And there have been, you know, numerous cases before about this kind of thing happening and being a problem. I mean, that being said, there, there's a lot of value that can be extracted from taking data. And that is true. We acknowledge that, you know, there are analytics data, there's use, you know, basic, basic usage data, but that can all be anonymized and that doesn't have to be linked to anyone. But if you're, if you're collecting all of this data or using as a user of a spatial computing device, do we, do you really want the camera that's pointing at your loved ones, you know, your children, your family and your friends and the world at large? Do you really want all that data being beamed back up to some company, some server somewhere where it's never going to be deleted? It's like that data shouldn't leave the device. And um, you know, Apple's done a great job of this kind of thing as well, and they've built a great brand around it. You know, but at Teleportal, we're we're very clear in it with especially with investors. So I think that's where things start to fall apart. Is that the founders usually have this idea of, yeah, let's have it privacy driven and let's adhere to all these values. But then it's like, oh, well, we, you know, we need to sacrifice a couple of the values because we have to raise this money or we have to get these users or whatever. I don't think it needs to be the case. I think if you're upfront, in our case, we've been upfront with our investors about what we do and what we don't do and what we're open to. And, you know, if you're open at the very beginning, that just informs people, hey, I want to invest in this company or, hey, I don't want to invest in this company. And either way, it's fine. But we just want to make sure that we're partnering with the people, either on the investment side or corporate partnership side, who believe in similar things to what we believe in. Even if they're, you know, it's okay to have differences, but being able to respect each other for those values, I think, is really important and not necessarily saying, okay, now you have to go down this rabbit hole of collecting this type of data or anything like that. Really well put. Honestly, I agree with all those things personally as well. And the fact that privacy shouldn't be, no offense, like it shouldn't be a value add, but unfortunately it is these days, right? Like Apple, you know, the reason that the brand is so strong, one of them, like you mentioned, is privacy and that's a value add for them. But it's weird to see that as a value add these days instead of just being an expectation, you know? So, you know, it's good to see that being put at the front and center of what Teleportal stands for and what you guys do. You know, the humble beginnings that you mentioned about just being upfront with your investors really stand to show, I think, that it is kind of an um, anomaly, if you will, if I look at, you know, different startups who've pivoted to please investors, to please, you know, hit these metrics of, you know, monthly users and engagement metrics and all those things. But that doesn't mean that, you know, this is Teleport's, you know, living, breathing example that you don't have to sacrifice those things to be still passionate about, you know, what your core product is and what you guys stand for. And one thing that's funny is like, <laughs> I look at the price of Oculus, right? And I'm like, well, you guys should really put it down a notch because you're making so much money off these users' data anyway. Like at this point, like Facebook should be paying you for the data they collect. Or I guess meta. Yeah, I think in general, I, I agree. But also, I mean, for example, the, the Quest is such an amazing piece of hardware. Meta has so many engineers and researchers and designers working on Quest and working on related things. And I, I really respect what they've been able to do on the hardware side. You know, the, 
the privacy and other things it's a different story but but not specifically on the hardware they have built a very capable device and they've been able to get the bill of materials cost down which is really cool i mean based on the the hardware i, I again i don't i don't really know but i would assume that they're either breaking even or even maybe taking a loss right now on the hardware and that's just because of the bill materials and research that's going into it, but it should, you know, continue to go down over time. But such such a capable device, I just wish there were an open source alternative or, or some sort of open platform that I think that'll happen. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. And you know, the if you look at like Google Cardboard, it's such a such an interesting offering. Um, but it's like still very powerful. But in no ways is it as immersive or capable as as the oculus right but i guess it's one of those things that just you know that's them dipping their toes in the water with the google cardboard or just even for people who want to experience ar or vr for the first time yeah i think we're going to see a lot of experiments over the next few years and honestly it's so fun to be in this space because i've been developing this space you know since 2013 or so and it's been so cool to see that the progression of frameworks and of devices. And I think we're, it's so fun to see just funky devices that come out, you know, or, or devices that are trying to do one particular thing really well. And maybe they don't do other things well, or they, they do a lot of, you know, there's just so many different devices that are going to come out so many different frameworks. And it honestly feels like a really cool experimental time for AR and VR even though I think we're really close to a consumer, like broad consumer release of this kind of stuff, it is really fun to be in, in, in the experimental phase still. Even some of the, I've seen like ridiculous things about, you know, the spectacles, the snap spectacles, and then also like Facebook partnering, or I keep saying, calling them Facebook, Meta partnering with Ray-Ban for those, you know, smart glasses, but make it lifestyle friendly, I guess. So that, that'll be interesting to see what comes about from that. Totally, yeah. So I wanted to like take a step back. I think some people still don't know the difference between AR and VR. So could you like give a, you know, explain like I'm five type of way of what is AR and VR and is AR a subset of VR and how does that, how do you, how do you break down those terms? Yeah, it's interesting because there are a few different schools of thought around AR and VR. Some people say that it's, the same thing. Some people say that they're completely different or there's overlap. I think both are correct. AR and VR have the same roots and on the technology side, they are both about either adding or editing something about the world that is perceived by someone. But the difference between AR and VR, so AR is augmented reality, VR is virtual reality. The premise of virtual reality is you change the entire space around you. So everything about your physical world becomes, you know, either through a headset or yeah, usually through through a headset, everything about your physical world will be changed. And you have, you know, visual elements of that, you have auditory elements of that, you know, you might even have tactile elements of it, but you are replacing the world that you're in with some virtual space that is rendered and generated by a computer either in real time or yeah, in, in real time with, you know, pre-canned elements as well. Augmented reality is about taking the existing world 
and adding to it, either adding objects to the environment or adding you know user interfaces to the environment, you know changing certain things about the environment. But you're kind of still stuck with the laws of physics and the the ways that the physical world works, and that's why. In some ways, VR is more complicated than AR to pull off. Uh, some ways, AR is more complicated than VR. And VR, I think one of the reasons that VR has been able to permeate through the market earlier is because the challenges around optics technology and battery life and kind of on-device processing of like slam tracking and things like that. Those are challenges that AR mainly faces. I mean, now they're faced also in VR with the Oculus Quest because they're also trying to do inside out tracking with the device, meaning you can put on the headset, move around the space, and you're in full VR, but everything is happening on device. So they're actually solving a lot of the issues of the AR by doing VR. But yeah, I mean, that's that's the big difference is AR adds to the world around you, VR replaces it. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And so one thing that I would like to understand is that Teleportal has an offering that's called Vortex. Essentially, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's basically a 3D toolkit that allows users to perform and capture motion that's then like rendered and exported. And it's a you know mobile app, uh, mobile first. And the goal here is to like empower video creators to experience CGI filmmaking. So my question here is like, what was the thought process or decision making process behind? the CGI aspect here and why this approach because to me not to question again I'm just I'm just thinking out loud here but like like this is still in a 2D screen so do you consider it as like a middle stage or a stepping stone to something more immersive in the future um like what's the emphasis and importance of CGI here yeah vortex is is a product for the here and now and it is for creators and we're trying to make it the best possible experience, like you said, using that 2D interface that's found on phones, but also by using device motion and some of the augmented reality capabilities of the device. But in other ways, it is this, a stepping stone to a bigger future. I think Vortex right now is about bringing that tool to mobile, and Vortex in the near future is about bringing that tool to smart glasses and something that you can just wear and use your body to perform. But the premise is the same. The premise of Vortex is to empower video creators to create in 3D. And so you can create 3D animations, you can do virtual production. A lot of the concepts that are happening right now in the highest levels of production, like the Pixar and Disney animation of, of the world, they have access to these really powerful virtual production studios and they're developing them from scratch. You know, There are companies like Magnopus working on this technology for them. But that technology isn't really accessible on mobile yet. And it's comparable to iMovie or Windows Movie Maker with video editing or even Final Cut or Premiere, any of these programs before those programs existed. It's really difficult for you know a, a consumer to get into that space. You had to be a professional. You had to have access to that equipment. And so we're trying to do something similar with Vortex to bring 3D animation down to a point where people can basically project their imagination onto this, you know, this virtual canvas, this, this application that allows you to capture performance data and apply it to rigs and bring in 3D models and texture them. And Vortex as it stands right now is actually an MVP of that. So we're trying to understand what works for people, what doesn't kind of iterate on that. But 
we're iterating toward this longer term thing of get more creators creating in 3D and creating 3D 3D animations and publishing them to platforms they already know, like TikTok and Instagram and Reddit and YouTube, and then being able to remix other people's creations, either in real time or ad hoc, you know, asynchronously. I think that suits the current time really well, the way you you mention it and break it down, because all right, you, but running like iMovie on your phone or iPad, it's not, it's not a thing, right? Because it was always like desktop first or just doing any type of content creation on mobile. It's, it's not intuitive at all. So I think Vortex solves that problem by, you know, bringing together number one being mobile first. So really harnessing and taking advantage of all the different like sensors that are on smartphones these days. And, you know, I just see it being a really intuitive tool going forward for people to create on. I think that's a really interesting space to be in and, and problem to solve. And I'm really excited to see like the different creations that come about from from Vortex. I think that is, to me, the creativity aspect is what I think will be really interesting to understand the platform, but also to like contribute it. So I think it is like this positive feedback loop of because now that you not only have that tool, but now you're having a community around that tool. And that's, I think, what will will be really special. Yeah, definitely. I, I agree. And I, I think I think Apple did a really good job of showing this idea that merging technology and pop culture is super valuable, not only to the technologists of the world, but to the general public and to creators and content you know, consumers and all these people. Because Apple started creating computers that looked and felt like luxury objects. They, they felt nice. You wanted to go and touch it. You know, you, you didn't want to, with, a, with a, a beige PC, you know, it's like, oh, that's a nerdy thing. It's got this, key, this giant QWERTY keyboard and it's, it's weird. But then Apple comes and they say, okay, well, the computer for the rest of us, Here's, that's their whole brand. Well, you know, initially, and it's really retained a large part of their brand, but they've made it relevant, consistently have made new technologies relevant to people, not necessarily because they're creating a problem for people, but they're allowing people to solve problems that they already have that they don't necessarily realize can be solved in an easier way, or at least providing a platform for people to do that through applications. And we've seen numerous examples, whether it's, you know, Google Maps or Uber or uh, social media. So that's really exciting. And I think we have a lot to learn. Again, going back to the analyzing what the greats have done and the pioneers, even if they didn't get everything right, there's a lot that they did get right. And there's a lot that we can learn from and create on top of, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants. Yeah, absolutely. Like, couldn't agree with that reference and those aspects more. I definitely echo, like, with the Apple computers, because at school, like you always want to be that kid who got to be on the Apple computer. Like there's always like, you know, one or two sprinkled in at the computer lab and you're like, oh, today I want to be that kid on that computer. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And and really there's, there's not a huge difference between the software that's running on a Mac and the software that's running on a Windows machine or the software that's running on an iPhone and the software that's running on an Android device. I mean, there are, I guess I'm talking generally here, of course, implementation detail wise, Android is 
pretty different from iOS in a lot of ways. You know, it's a lot more fragmented. It runs a different operating system. Apple's done a lot of optimization to iOS. We have to deal with a lot of this kind of stuff, building for mobile, especially with the lower level stuff that we're trying to do at Teleportal. Making it work on iOS is very different from making it work on Android. On Android, it's often more difficult uh, for a variety of reasons. I still use Android as my daily driver, um, but you know, I use an iPhone as well. And yeah, it's interesting what Apple's been able to do with creating these devices that are, in their words, magical to use. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing I want to call out with with Teleportal and, and Vortex is that just a bigger emphasis on the, the mobile first, right? Not only is, you know, smartphones, that is the way, primary way people compute these days, right? Like, if you look at, regardless of income, status, you know, your background, all that, all those factors, those socioeconomic factors, majority of people have a smartphone and that is the way that they're using to communicate, to browse information and all of that. So just the fact that this platform is mobile first, to me, looks like a win-win, right? Not only are you casting the widest net possible for your user base, but that's just also the way that you're able to captivate and just further grow upon, you know, those users and their creativity and just really capture that in its in the best way possible. So I think that is definitely something to to call out. I mean, how magical is that though that we've been able to as a society where all those people have access to a smartphone, have access to their own personal computer that's in their pocket. And I, I just I think that's so cool. It's really interesting because yes, there's so much potential with this pocket, you know, this little miniature amazing machine in your pocket. But people unfortunately, like exploit that, you know, I just wanted to kind of little touch a bit upon, you know, we have to call it the big elephant in the room. I mean, I think we've already mentioned it very, very often already. But, you know, Facebook or Meta, they're announcing the metaverse. Like I did watch that, whatever hour long announcement that, you know, put they put together with Mark Zuckerberg at the center. And to me, it was kind of whimsical when they showed like, oh, let's go to this world. We're playing games here. Oh, let's go to this world. Look what I created. And to me, it's just kind of questions of like, how much of this is actually going to be the case, right? Like how much of this is not going to be paywalled, bombarded by ads and all that type of stuff. And, you know, to me, I look at it as a new way for digital real estate for Facebook, right? Like they're going to be able to have all new type of forms of ways companies to put up ads, put up ads that are to me going to be the most intimate ever. Like you'll be able to like see this product or this experience and it's like right there and it's like this or something. And it just kind of makes me spiral into thinking about Black Mirror and all that type of stuff. And then on top of that, we have this this movement of, you know, NFTs and creating various types of online marketplaces and digital goods. And if it's all fueled by digital currency, it'll just feel super immediate. And the desire to have instant gratification, I think, as a society could potentially increase with this type of exploitation. So I just wanted to know, like, your thoughts on Meta and their uh, VR approach, or they also have, like, a Reality Labs just wanted to know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah. As I mentioned earlier, Meta has a lot of very talented people working there. You know, they're one of the largest employers 
if not the largest employer of people who are specializing in augmented and virtual reality today. And part of it is due to the fact that they're printing money, <laughs> but part of it's due to the, the fact that they are really putting their entire mission behind this now moving forward and you know, for, for better and worse. But what they've been able to do with Oculus, with the Quest is awesome, you know? from a hardware standpoint, but then we get into the software and we get into the privacy and the terms of conditions. I mean, I, I would say let's give them the, the benefit of the doubt, but they don't really have the best track record. So I'm not going to do that. It concerns me to see, and I think it concerns a lot of people in AR and VR right now to see one giant company that is able to take so much of the talent, you know, they're paying a lot of money for the talent. And it's with this promise that, you know, you'll be working on the next computing paradigm because you are, but you know, Apple's doing the same thing. Apple and Facebook are constantly in a hiring war against each other for spatial computing people. And um, what's really interesting about this space, especially with Facebook's announcement of, well, their metaverse, I mean, metaverse is not new, but the way that they, they're portraying it, the space is so hot and it's it has so much hype. And we actually noticed this when we were raising um, you know, we haven't raised since the, for our investment since the meta, uh, announcement, but even before that, you know, it seems to go on these waves. Like we've, we've had times where it's been extremely difficult to even talk to anyone about what we do because they, they disregard the say, oh, AR VR, that's dead. It's dead because VR failed quote unquote failed a few years ago and AR failed and, you know, Google Glass was a big flop or whatever it disagree, but you know, whatever. And so, because I think a lot of these things are more nuanced than just Facebook's really bad or Facebook's really good, or, you know, the VR is dead or VR is thriving and is the next big thing. There are a lot more nuanced than that. Like people in the nineties thought that spatial computing was going to be a thing in the early two thousands, maybe not by that name, but having things in the real world and everyone's going to be interacting with objects and you know there aren't going to be applications and all these things but we don't actually know for sure when this reality is going to come there's this constant rumor that shows up every year that apple is going to launch their ar glasses in current year plus one or current year plus two and the point is that this is an ongoing research endeavor and i think there are a lot of problems with one company or a couple of companies owning and operating this entire thing. And I would actually also say that Apple and Meta are both, they, they can operate more slowly and they can afford to take their time. Even though there's this visible competition between Apple and Meta to get to spatial computing, they don't really have to go that fast with it because they're both, they know that they're both working on technologies that are very new, but they're also technologies that are based on a lot of research and over the past few years, and there's there's not really that much of an incentive for them to say, let's figure out how to do this, you know, let's say how to how to how to rebuild the computer from the ground up, because there's so much legacy on Apple's side. They have Core OS, which powers iOS and Mac OS, and all you know all their variants of of the core operating system that's based on you know their kernel. That kernel and that operating system have been around for over 20 years at this point, which is a testament to how well it was built and how well it was architected. But, and same with Facebook, you know, who knows what they're building on, but likely it's some Android variant or some Linux variant. And I, I think 
what's really special about any time that you get a new computing revolution, like, you know, mainframe to personal computer or personal computer to even the, the internet, and the World Wide Web, or that to mobile, or especially now mobile to spatial computing, we have the opportunity to not just rewrite how things are done at a high level, but how things are done at a low level and figure out how can we get more people into computing and into thinking things, thinking in ways that, you know, they can actually architect pieces of the computer, even if they don't have a formal computer science background, for example. And that's possible at a high level with no code. That's possible at a high level with certain creator tools that we have. But I think the bigger companies don't have that much of an incentive to really think low level. And I think that's where the long-term value is for a new type of spatial computer. But as soon as you sell to one of those companies, you know, that's, that's kind of it. So I'm not, I'm not necessarily ruling out acquisitions, but I do think that acquisitions in general, especially in a space that's as nascent on the consumer side as spatial computing are, are pretty damaging to the ecosystem. And I think there's an opportunity for a consortium of independent companies to come up and be a big player. Yeah. This explanation, it just kind of blows my mind because when you emphasize how much of a chokehold Meta has on the industry experts, the people from academia, just the access to that type of knowledge and information that they have, you know, to me, it, it calls for dilution. And that's exactly what you explained is you need to have other players in this space that have different offerings so people know what's out there. You know, people know that there is a metaverse beyond Facebook's, that there are these spaces and products that have influence and have value and that you just don't need to be always bombarded by ads. You can be actually bombarded by valuable content and much rather put your dollar or your money in seeing content that values, you know, you rather than just kind of having your data exploited and your personal wants and desires that can be, you know, put in, fed into an algorithm exploited. So that's, I think, I hope that will be like a reality check and wake up call for a lot of folks when it kind of comes to that point of what kind of platform do you want to spend most of your time in and what will give you the most gratification and hopefully we see that kind of diversify. I agree. I mean, I also, we're also basing it on the idea that Facebook or any of these companies will bombard us with ads or will take our data. I mean, it's not necessarily the case. It's just that it's not a great track record so far. So I think we have to be careful as an industry. But the other, the other thing that's interesting to, to what you said is you'd rather be bombarded with quality content than be bombarded with ads. And I'd actually take that a step further to say, I'd rather be not bombarded with anything than be bombarded with quality content. Because one of the things that, that Glass showed and that actually research leading up to Glass, a lot of the researchers went to the Glass project, showed with micro interactions is that in order to do AR, you actually don't really, like AR glasses, you don't actually really need full frame AR. It, it's really nice for immersion and for kind of having the space, the screen real estate, the field of view to be able to manipulate objects and create things effectively, but you actually don't need it. Google Glass has a very small 
field of view. It actually has a pretty decent eye box, which is, you know, if you move the, the glass unit around your face, like it'll accommodate different face sizes. It's, it, you can kind of see it from a lot of different places, uh, see the display. But one thing that was really magical about glass is even though, of course, bigger eye box, but small point of view, even though it has a small field of view, and, and even though it was a 2D interface, the magic of the micro interactions, the fact that it's there when you need it and it's gone when you don't, is actually really freeing. And I've noticed this, I actually, one of the reasons that I still wear glass and I've worn it for years, at this point it's been, let's see, 2013, 2022, so about nine years I've been wearing this thing. Wear Google Glass for multiple reasons daily still as the same unit. I'm actually surprised the battery's still going. But you know, I use it as a computer, I use it as uh, you know to write code or do pull request reviews or things like that on the go. I use it for as a as a camera. It's actually one of my it's like my secondary camera other than my phone, and um, you know I use it for voice commands and notifications. But one of the biggest reasons I still wear glass is to have an understanding of what it's going to be like psychologically when everyone is using these things, because I think that that is another in addition to the data privacy issue, that is another massive thing that has not been explored, at least from what I've seen. So I, I wear glass everywhere. I wear it in airports. I wear it at work. I wear it, I wore it at um, Georgia Tech when I, you know, before I dropped out, you know, I've even worn it, like you, you go into a public bathroom in the airport or public bathroom, wherever, what do you do with the glass? You know, you've got this camera, it's not on, but people don't know that. Right. And so, and then the other thing is at a dinner table. What happens when you're with family and you have your Google Glass on? And so I've actually noticed certain behaviors that not only in myself, but in other people, because I'm, I'm trying to be very understanding of what it's doing to people. And one thing that I've noticed pretty consistently is if I have the glass on, even with someone who knows me very well, like a close friend, if I have the glass on, our conversation is at a high level. Like it's at a decently high level. You know, it might be kind of personal, but it's pretty high level. Within 30 seconds of taking the glass unit off my face, they instantly start to open up about a deep on a deeper level. Like maybe something that was bothering them on, you know, throughout the day or the relationship or whatever, like something like that. As soon as I take the glass off, even though they know I'm not recording, even though they know just a little auxiliary thing, I'm not really looking at it, the connection is back. And I think that has not been explored enough and it needs to be explored because there's, there's, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know the psychology behind it, but I've noticed some really powerful things about how it affects other people like that. That's just one example. And I've also noticed how it affects me. And I'm someone who loves being around technology. Of course, I, however many devices, <laughs> I lose track of the number of screens and the number of processors that are around me. You know, it's true. I, I've been like that since I was eight or nine, like constant exposure to devices for better or worse. But with glass, sometimes I feel I need the break. It's not even doing anything. Sometimes I turn the unit off and I still wear it and I still feel connected. And so there's this, there's a lot of like really interesting psychological things that we need to work out as an industry. And I, I think they'll be worked out, but there's gotta be someone <laughs> watching out for these things, you know? Yeah. That's actually really interesting stories that you shared because I agree. It's very underrated. People aren't really talking about it. But I think I really hope that it's going to be really well researched before like it's in everyone's faces and before it's like super 
commercialized and mainstream. Like I really hope people do due diligence, whether it be companies or, you know, industry experts um, on this, because I think that it will really affect how we perceive one another. It has the potential at least, and also the potential to impact like personal development. And we already kind of see little bits about that, like with VR, when it comes to like safety with minors and, you know, like the different things that a person's identity could be compromised somehow with these devices or with this type of technology. So, you know, I'm really, really hoping that this stuff is well understood before it's just pushed out at such a large scale. And you mentioned that this be maybe one of the things that be well researched. What are some other topics or aspects of this industry? If you could put on a wish list, like I wish these things were figured out, what would it be kind of the regulation behind this technology in the future or different rules and regulations around how things would work? Do you think those rules would be restrictive of the industry or be protective of the the consumers in the space? Yeah. It's hard no, to find it, 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 Yeah, you're right. It is. It's a very interesting question though. I mean, this is more of, it's kind of philosophical too. I, I don't personally believe that I guess I'm going to get a little political here, but I actually don't personally believe that government is the right way to enforce restrictions when it comes to new technology. Because in general, they're just, they're always going to be behind. And it's not necessarily, even if you have the most tech savvy government officials who are on top of this stuff, what's happening behind closed doors and research labs, just fine for it to happen behind closed doors. But what's happening, you know, like I worked for Samsung Research, we had all sorts of really cool technology that was being developed. Now, one thing that I really liked about Samsung in particular, and I, I hear this from people at Apple as well, is that the number one question was, hey, like, are we doing right by our users? Are we doing right by our data privacy principles? And so even before it was handed off to Samsung Electronics to you know, commercialize it, even in the research labs, we were trying to figure out how are we going to protect users' data? How are we going to, you know, live up to the standards that our our colleagues, both in the U.S. and Korea, you know, how how are we going to do that? And I, I really like that culture because people did care. But but I think with that, by the very nature of the technology, it's nothing against the government officials, even if they are tech savvy. It's the fact that the companies are the ones who are pushing this. You can regulate a company as much as you want. Some of these companies are above the law. Facebook has so much money, they can just pay. I mean, remember when Facebook's stock went up because they, you know, they had a, an issue with the government. It's just, it's crazy. So I think it's up to the people and, and it's like, you know, we, the people, we, the people work for these companies. We, the people found these companies. We, the people are the government as well, but the governance should come from the, I mean, maybe with Web3 and blockchain, we'll start to see this happen differently where you have DAOs and kind of more decentralized governance, which is really exciting. But in the meantime, let's, my, my biggest wish list item, I guess, and I, have a, I have a couple, but my biggest wish list item is if we as engineers and designers can stop thinking of ourselves as solely engineers and designers, if we can all think critically about what are the ramifications of what we're doing here? And I, I do think the vast majority of engineers and designers do think that way or and or they would think that way if that were the, the main culture at the company. And uh, I think it's just harder as you get to be a bigger and bigger company, you take on more and more dilution, even like I think open source projects are a lot better about this kind of stuff, obviously, because they 
they don't they don't have dilution with bigger companies uh, in the same way. But yeah, I guess that's trying to think of, and it's not a it's not like oh one thing's moral and one thing isn't. You know, you can't just I can't really here sit here on my high horse and say oh yeah you know that person you know, this, this company is doing something moral and this company is not. It's like, it's not up to me to figure that out. I am one voice. You know, I might be a loud voice. I run Arch Linux and Android and DuckDuckGo and Firefox. So I'm, I'm, I'm one of those, those annoying, like open source, uh, fanatic people, I guess, but I am one voice and it's not up to me to figure it out, but I think it's up to all of us to figure out what is the future that we want to be in when we're in a spatial computing environment because it's happening and it's, let's take ourselves out of it. Let's take our companies out of it. Let's take our, like our development selves. Think of, think of your loved ones. Think of like, think of your kids. Think, I don't know, think of someone you're like, what, what do I need to put in front of them to keep them safe? Those are honestly really great words of wisdom. And just to echo that, not to forget that as users, like our number one, I think these days our number one, the currency that we can give nowadays is time. And so when you can spend your time on these various platforms and experience whatever content you may be, really kind of think about the the impacts that it may have and also like understand consumer behavior a little bit more. And I think that like, leads to, I love seeing like creators out there who, make content about like educating and uh, making consumers aware of these different things that are going on. And that's also one of the goals of, of this show. So I really hope that it gets just honestly just gets people's gears turning in their heads and starting to make them understand and realize the different interactions that they have with technology and what it means for themselves and ultimately have those conversations and just be honest and transparent with how you're feeling about certain things and bringing out your thoughts and opinions in a space. Thomas, thank you so, so, so much for taking some time today to come on this show and share your thoughts and talk a bit about Teleportal and your vision for this industry that is extremely, I think this 2022 is the year that we're gonna start seeing a lot more dialogue around the VR and AR space. I think this is like a turning point if you were to ask me, and I think the pandemic just really just accelerated that timeline much more. And so you can take some time now to, you know, have any plugs or if there's anything else you want to share, um, social media plugs or whatnot. Yeah, I guess I have two two major things with Teleportal right now. One is check out Vortex if you're interested in 3D creation and 3D animation on mobile. And then the second thing is if you'd like to come help us build some of the stuff, we are hiring. So we're always looking out for people who either, you know, on the engineering side or design side or research or, you know, all of the above, someone who is passionate about building a spatial computing future that we all want to live in, we, we would love to have you. So yeah, feel free to check out our site and or DM me on Twitter. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you, Nikita. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode. You can subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. If you have any questions, feedback, topic ideas, or just want to say hi, feel free to tweet or message me at Nikita underscore. I hope you are all staying safe and healthy during this time, 
Mask up, vax up, and take care.